Welcome to the Happy Homeschooler Podcast, a digital support group for everyone interested in a learning lifestyle. I'm your host, Jennifer. I'm your co-host, Holly. I'm your co-host, Melody. This is episode 97 of our podcast, and today we'll be interviewing Jessmine Putnam, an expert on learning disability testing. But before we get to that, how's everybody been? Can you believe that we're almost to episode 100? Well, it's astounding, and it's been quite a journey. We're all in the throes of some unexpected cold weather Mm -hmm. um, here in Texas, and today is my 38th wedding anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. Thank you. I We were saying, wow, you know, when we started this, we didn't think about 38 years of, and what all that means. <laughs> so we're going to go out to dinner tonight. We're taking our youngest son with us because uh, we don't have anyone he can hang out with. So he gets to enjoy our celebration with us. <laughs> and, um, I'm sure, though nobody has ever emailed us to ask, I'm sure people are wondering about the cats in my life. So can I share a little bit about the cats? Of course. (laughs) Okay. So a couple weeks ago, there was a small black kitten that came into my yard. I've been trying to catch this kitten for a while. And it finally came in and I was able to get it and it went to a rescue. So that was exciting. But... There are two female cats that were pregnant that I was trying to get into rescues. And those sneaky girls, I had someone for one of the cats and they were going to get her the next day. And she had her kittens that night Uh, before. Oh, no. (laughs) And then the same thing happened with the other cat. So now there are kittens somewhere. But we don't know where they are. Now we have to wait until the kittens start making an appearance. Catch all the kittens, <laughs> find them home, they get the oh moms my uh, fixed. And, you know, it's like one step Look. forward, two steps back. These cats are sneaky. Your dedication to this is impressive. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I, I really, um, you know, I didn't intend to get into cat rescue, but I just can't stand to see them uncared for and suffering. Yeah, so yeah. now I'm no longer the reluctant cat rescue lady. I'm just kind of <laughs> like the resigned cat rescue lady. <laughs> I've resigned now, myself to it. You're an advocate for the cats now. <laughs> that's um, right. I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. Well, Melody, um, what have you been up to? Oh, it's kind of hard to say. We can't keep up with the weather around here. And so I've like, I <laughs> plan these outdoor projects and then the weather, it rains or suddenly it's cold or suddenly it's way too hot to go and do whatever we plan to do. But we have had a lot of our grandkids have been over to spend the night and we've just had a lot of family activities going on over the night. We have birthdays. Nice. Parties, And so I feel like we've just been running and running and running. And we've seen a lot of everybody, which has been really fun. Over spring break, everybody was so busy, we didn't all see each other. So mm-hmm. it's almost like we're getting back into the swing of things and gearing up for summer and a lot of fun changes. We've also had some like surprises along the way. And life is like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just with the punches, and we just keep on going. But we're doing well over here. Oh, that's good. How have you been, Jen? I've been really good. I actually just got back from a week down at the coast. The kids and I went tent camping at the beach for a week with a bunch of friends, other homeschool families. It's something we do every year. It's a really fun tradition. And we just relaxed all week, which was so nice. But I, the kids, you know, did all the things you do at the beach and they built things and they investigated things and explored. And it was a great unschooling week where we were all learning things, but relaxing at the same time. And I just absolutely loved it. 
it. And now the oh, rainy weather is kind of putting a damper on it. Uh, yeah, well, we I hate the rain though. Yes, we do. It's good. It's good. And actually the temperature is nice to be a little bit cool for a day. <laughs> it can go back up. I'd be happy with that too. Well, that's enough about us this week. I'm really excited about our interview today and I can't wait to hear what Jessamine has to say. Today, we'd like to welcome Jessamine Putnam to the show. She is a fellow homeschool mom. I know her from out, she lives out where I live in the Hill Country. And she's a special education advocate and an educational consultant. And today she's here to talk to us about uh, assessing your kids for learning disabilities and how to get services and all of the details involved in that. Hi, Jessamine, welcome to the show. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you too. This is actually a topic that has come up a lot in questions of, you know, what to do when you're concerned about your child's learning levels. Maybe they're not where you think they should be, or how do you get services if you're homeschooling? So this is a very big topic, and we're really happy to have you here today. Why don't you first tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. I would love to. So I actually became a special education advocate because I have three children who I, all three are homeschooled, who are neurodiverse. They all have special needs. And of course, it ranges from dyslexia, dysgraphia, ADHD, autism. I mean, if you want to throw something on the wall, it's probably going to stick. But also, of course, through their journey, I've also discovered that, hey, I'm neurodiverse too. And so mm -hmm. that was really great because through that journey, it's helped me explain a lot of how I interact with the world and given me the tools that I need to be able to relate better with people. But it's also given me the tools to be able to articulate and, and, and be the voice to kids at the, pub, mm -hmm. at the table with public schools, not only through my kids' experiences, but looking back through how my lived experiences, I can help empower families and be their voice. I just think that's very valuable. I love that so much. So when you're, oh, that's huge. Were your kids in public school previously? So yes. Yeah. So my my older, I have twins, and they're fourteen, and they were in public school from kinder through seventh. But my mm -hmm. youngest child was only in pre-K, but then I've been homeschooling him from kinder on. And so I believe he's second right now. Well, you must have encountered something that made the public school experience not all it was cracked up to be for your family since you are homeschooling. How did you get into homeschooling? So I actually homeschooled my twins when they were younger, when about the kindergarten, a little before the kindergarten age, because they got kicked out of private preschools. And, um, so we were experiencing problems at a very early age, and we mm -hmm. were going in and out. They were evaluated by ECI and didn't qualify. And of course, looking back now at reading through all those evaluations, their autism is screaming out through those evaluations. But as a parent, mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know. It's also really difficult when your two-year-olds are in gymnastics and you have the 20-year-old coach coming up to you and saying that they need to be on a medicinal <laughs> regimen. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so you find <laughs> that you're kind of in, in denial. All the signs mm -hmm. were there, but as a parent, you don't know what you don't know. And your kids are your world and they're your normal. Yeah. And they were your first kids, so you didn't have anything to compare them against. So for, right. for my family, my middle son is most likely on the autism spectrum. He's not been tested, but um, he and my husband are pretty textbook examples of people who are having Asperger's, which I know they don't use that terminology anymore. But I knew he was very different 
because I had other children that I could compare him to. So that's mm-hmm. when my journey started. Like, I need to figure out how I can help this child because I didn't think I was a bad parent all of a sudden. Uh, but when they're your first two kids and that's all you know, I'm sure that was a little more challenging. It was. And that's why going through all of the process and learning everything I learned, I've developed my skill set. But then, of course, I went and got training and I went and joined a group where we gave volunteer advocacy service. I also was trained through the Council of Parents, Advocates and Attorneys so that I could hone my skill set and turn around and help other parents because you don't know what you don't know. So one of the things that I appreciate, Holly, about what you said is it's not because we don't know what we don't know. We as parents, especially moms and sometimes dads, we internalize and we think it's us. We think we're bad parents. and That's why our kids are acting out. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come on and talk about this today, because we're not bad parents. It's not our teaching style. We don't have to put our kids back into a traditional brick and mortar school to see success. If you have concerns, then that is a red flag or a clue that it is time to go and seek an evaluation. Mm -hmm. But a lot of parents, they're scared to go get an evaluation because they don't want to be quote unquote labeled. And that's why I wanted to come to this podcast because it's not about getting labels. It's about understanding how your child's brain works so that you can understand their strengths and weaknesses, and then you can utilize their strengths to support their weaknesses and search for that curriculum or te- or become educated on the teaching style that is going to support their areas of need. Parents don't know how to get those resources. In our Facebook groups, I would say not every day, but almost that frequently, people are asking, how can I get my child evaluated? I'm yes. having this problem. I don't know what to do. I'm a homeschooler. Can the public school evaluate my kid? Mm -hmm. Do they have to go to public school and get Mm -hmm. services? There are so many questions. Mm -hmm. And people are really, um, you know, they need these answers and they often don't know where to look. So what would you say, Jessamine? How do you get started if you're a homeschool parent with concerns? There are multiple avenues. Now, the easiest avenue is the public school. The public school has an affirmative action to evaluate any and every child in their district who is suspected of a disability. What that means, though, is that you have to go alert the school district if you are not enrolled in their school that you suspect your child has a disability. So Mm -hmm. and you do that by writing, because if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. So calling them up on the phone isn't going to trigger their legal responsibility. Now, I want to remind everybody that I'm a non-attorney special education advocate. So if you need (laughs) legal advice, please go seek the services of an attorney. But so you would um, contact your school district in, in writing via email, and it would be your home campus the principal, the counselor, you can also include the special education director on that email and simply say that you would like to have your child evaluated under IDEA or child find as you suspect your child has a disability that's interfering with their educational needs. But then you have to say, well, what's education? You know, here we are, we're homeschooling my kids first grade kindergarten, we're not tracking grades. Educational need is diverse. It's much more diverse than people expect. It not only includes academics, but it includes your social, emotional, behavioral, Mm -hmm. adaptive, functional. So if your child is struggling to interact appropriately with peers, 
then you can get them evaluated by the public school. That's an educational need. If your child is in fifth grade and can't tie their shoes or they can't button up, they can't button their pants or they're struggling with um, using utensils and they've had the appropriate supports, they've been taught and exposed to this in the home, then that's an adaptive functional need. That would be another red flag to go get them evaluated. So you do look at academics. You look at can your preschool child or your kindergarten or first grader, can they rhyme? Can they take words apart and put them together? Can they decode cut? Um, can they say all of the letters, all the digraphs? That would be something along the lines that you're looking for if your child is dyslexic or has a specific learning disability in reading. But like I said, you look at not just the academic portion, but the functional behavioral. And you would include that in your letter to the school district. And then in Texas, the school district has 15 school days in order to decide whether they will evaluate or not. Or not. And once they have your consent, 45 school days to conduct the evaluation. So we're heading into summer now. <laughs> and so if you do it anywhere close to near the end of April or in May, then that evaluation wait honed mm -hmm. until the beginning of the next school year. So that's one of the downfalls of doing it through the public school system, except if you're doing it during the, the traditional school year, it's a benefit because they actually move much more quickly than private providers. So that's one way of doing it. I don't know if you'll okay. have any questions or input. I do, actually. Uh, first of all, you mentioned the laws in Texas. Do you know if this is typically true for other states as well? So there's federal law and all states have to follow federal law first and then they can do more, go above federal law. So federal law says once consent is obtained, meaning the parent has to sign consent mm -hmm. to evaluate, it's 60 days. Okay. So how Texas interprets that is they take 15 days to obtain the consent and then 45 to evaluate. So they actually have, once they have that consent, a quicker time frame, And then you have... 30 days after that, which is also federal law, 30 calendar days to hold the IEP meeting, which in Texas is called an ARD. Now, IDEA, the federal law, does not define what a day looks like. So school, okay. so each state has the ability to define a, a school day. So, for example, in Virginia, they have five days to obtain consent under their law, and then they have right. the state to evaluate. In Montana, there is no time frame for obtaining consent. So you could be hanging out for three months for the school district to obtain okay. consent. And then but you. But homeschoolers are able to access those services in all states. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Okay, and then another question I have is more along the lines of a lot of homeschool families are a little bit nervous or uh, even scared to deal with the public school system and worried that there's somehow going to be strings attached to dealing with them. So if you do decide to have your child evaluated by the public school system, are there any strings attached to that as a homeschooler? Do you have to comply with anything? Do they have any requirements of you and your student? The short answer is no. The longer answer is that one of the exclusionary factors for getting and services, and so sometimes schools will look at exclusionary factors in determining whether or not they will obtain your consent to evaluate, is the quality of the academic instruction. So in Texas, homeschool is the equivalent of a private school. And so this is where it's always great to have an advocate because mm -hmm. schools could question the quality of the academic education 
and deny an evaluation. That has not happened to my clients, Mm -hmm. but I do know in cases where that has happened. So again, that's where some homeschool families might feel that it's a bit invasive because I encourage my clients to go prepared to discuss or share what the child has been exposed to in terms Mm -hmm. of academic instruction, not necessarily to bring reams or that it has to be an accredited curriculum that no, it does not have to be. Texas has is very clear about what homeschooling needs to do and that homeschooling is private. And so that's how I go in and support the families. I do want to be blunt and straightforward, though, and say that that would be the major the major sticking point is they might come mm-hmm. back and say, well, we believe that this child has not had a quality academic education and therefore would disqualify them. Because once you get evaluated, homeschoolers would have, and any private schooler, would have the opportunity to actually avail themselves of some services under right. the share law. But there there would be that one potential hurdle for a homeschooler. And that's why there are some other options for evaluations I okay. would as well. Absolutely. Tell us about this. So when you go to the public school, that is to evaluate for any suspected disability. And there are 13 disability categories under um, IDEA, and that could be a traumatic brain injury, um, vision impairment. There, there are a whole variety of them. But there's another option, too, which is a little bit more limited in scope, and that's the Scottish Rite. And the Scottish Rite will evaluate for dyslexia and dysgraphia, and I believe dyscalculia, but they won't if you they, you know that your child has ADHD or autism, that will be an exclusionary factor. Now, if you go, if you don't know that and you get evaluated by them, then they could determine in their evaluation process or identify your child with those during the evaluation process, but they will not evaluate your child if you know that they have ADHD or autism. And the Scottish Rite is free. Now, the Scottish Rite, the last time I checked, had a very long wait list, um, six to nine months. I do not know if if that has shortened. That would be something that you would have to call and find out. They have a lot more paperwork. They do want to know what your academic instruction is. (laughs) They do ask you to write down what the day looks like, et cetera. So I would say they might be, in fact, a little bit more invasive in terms Mm -hmm. of wanting to know the quality of your academic instruction in the public school. But they are also another option that is free. And if you're just concerned about if your child has a learning disability that is specific to reading, writing, or math, they are also an incredible resource that's available to our families. And is that available only in Texas or is that also nationwide? No, that is nationwide. Okay, awesome. That's a great resource. Yeah, I had a friend who actually um, had her daughter evaluated for dyslexia through the Scottish Rite. And then she took reading instruction from them. I think that actually was not free, the services that they offered after the evaluation. Um, Can you speak to that, Jessamyn? So first of all, it would depend on where they went to get evaluated and what resources they had to offer. And then it would depend on the family's financial situation. But I know that the Luke's Wake Scottish Rites Hospital in Dallas, for some families with certain financial situations, will offer a year of take flight at no cost, but mm-hmm. you have to meet certain criteria. And what is take flight? So take flight is a an Orton-Gillingham dyslexia intervention program that the Scottish mm-hmm. Rite created, and they train 
practitioners in using. And so it's their program, it's their proprietary program that they will train other people in all across the United States. So I will say that the program Take Flight is stronger in Texas than it is in other parts of the nation. So I would probably want to say that in answering that Scottish rights question, I believe that you can be about that there are other Scottish rights hospitals who would evaluate in other parts of the nation, but it is strongest and more prevalent in Texas and the South. The Wilson program, which is another Orton-Gillingham approach, is the preferred method on the East Coast. So you have going through the public school, of going through the Scottish right. What are other options that parents have for getting their children evaluated? Of course, you can always go through a private provider and you can see if your insurance will cover it, which in some cases they will and in some cases they won't. So typically, if you just want, say you just want to be have your child evaluated for dyslexia, that's hard oftentimes for insurance to cover. But if you're just going to a um, psychologist, a neuropsychologist, a developmental or behavioral pediatrician, those are some of the ones, the, the providers that you would go to to evaluate your child and you just wanted your child to have an overall evaluation, that insurance would typically cover something like that. But again, you would have to reach out to your insurance. If you did not use your insurance, then those evaluations could are several thousand dollars usually. Um, again, the more specific and narrow the evaluation, the less expensive it's going to be. But there's a big difference. So I talked about the school and Scottish Rite. There's a difference between an educational evaluation and a medical evaluation. And I'd like to address that really quickly mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the schools will talk about educational need and medical need and the schools identify, they don't diagnose and the, whereas the medical field diagnoses. I want to clarify something. All of these groups use the same tests. Okay. A speech therapist in a school setting and a speech therapist in a um, children's hospital are still going to use a, a test called ACTOP or ACELF to look at expressive, receptive, articulation, pragmatic speech concerns. It's just one group is going to say, is this going to impede in a child's ability to navigate a classroom or function in a classroom or be understood? And the other group is gonna say, okay, is this below the standards of their peers and do they need therapy in order to get up to the standards of their peers? And will insurance, is this enough to justify insurance coming in and paying for speech therapy? Mm -hmm. So that's going to be your difference. And oftentimes you can take your school evaluation and go to your pediatrician or go to a medical doctor. And then oftentimes they'll review that and give you a medical diagnosis without you having to pay for medical testing. Now, that isn't always the case. That's up to your provider. But Lots of my clients have done that. So again, that could be a benefit of going the school route, taking that testing, and then going to your pediatrician. And if you have insurance, now all of a sudden you've got whatever diagnoses you need to have, and then you can use that to get those services through your insurance. Right. I have two adult children now that both have disabilities, one physical and one has autism, and they were both went through the school system. They were also medically diagnosed. And I just wanted to point out that uh, you mentioned people are don't like their kids to be labeled and that that's a topic that comes up often. But I've found that those diagnoses and, and the 
official labels are very, very helpful later on in getting services, even into adulthood. My One of my sons has been able to get employment and he needed those labels. So I just wanted to encourage mm-hmm. parents to not be so scared of those labels, especially the medical diagnosis labels. So they've been very helpful for our family. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, happy homeschoolers. Let's chat a bit about our sponsor, Transcript Maker. Unfortunately for me, when I was homeschooling my children, I didn't have Transcript Maker, and I really wish I had. I was that mom hand calculating grade point averages, using a typewriter, what a dinosaur, right? (laughs) To physically type, cut, and literally paste course listings and grades onto like a printed template to create my kids' transcripts. And then personal computers came along, and my task was a little easier, but my children's transcripts lack the polished professional look that you will have with Transcript Maker. My pieced together transcripts were adequate, but why be adequate when you could showcase your child's education with Transcript Maker and make your job easier at the same time? With Transcript Maker, you can just plug all your courses in and it fills everything out for you. And just for listeners of our podcast, you can save 20% off your subscription with our exclusive coupon code HAPPY. That's H-A-P-P-Y in all caps. Go to www.transcriptmaker.com today and fall in love for yourself. Transcript Maker, simply better transcripts. And I actually couldn't agree with you more because autism will open up insurance mm-hmm. opportunities. You'll get more speech therapy, occupational therapies. It, it opens up so much more. If you yes. did say go back to the public school setting, you have something called the autism supplement that's unique to Texas that's going to open up a whole world more of services for you. I love the fact that you brought up your older slash adult kids because the other thing we haven't discussed yet is the workforce commission and how you can get testing if you have Mm -hmm. older children or adults. What we focused Mm -hmm. on is we're talking about kids right now, right? Because that's where we start to see most of our our problems or our, Mm -hmm. and I shouldn't say problems, our areas of concern is we're working with our our younger kids, our elementary age kids, or maybe middle school kids. But what happens when we're looking at a 14-year-old? What happens when we're looking at an 18-year-old, a 22-year-old? What do we do? Yeah, it's actually was very relevant to my situation because my son who's autistic, we we did pull him out of school when he was, I believe it was second grade and that's as far as he went and he wasn't succeeding there. And so we homeschooled him since then. And as a homeschooler, we were able to pretty much serve his needs and we didn't, he didn't really need any outside services until much later on. And when he became more independent and he was interested in uh, graduating and becoming employed, that is when we were like, oh, we don't know how to do this. We do need help. We do need services for him to be able to go out and be in the workforce. And so he actually went through a special, it was through the, the workforce commission. Um, he went through a special program uh, where he went to a training at a hospital for a year. And it was basically kind of like an internship. It was wonderful. They did a, they did, he walked through like every part of the hospital. So he did all the different jobs for a year and they taught him how to 
be in the workforce, but they also taught him how to fill out applications, how to do interviews, all of those things. And then they helped him find a job placement after that. And he's been very successful. It's been three years um, and he's been very successful with it. And they were able to help him find a job that fit his abilities and that he's happy with. So yeah, those services are huge. And I think that we do when our children are younger and we have kids with special needs, that's that's pretty overwhelming. But you're right. We forget that they are going to be older eventually. And there are a lot of needs as they get older that we do need to address. And I loved your example because so many people are not aware that the Texas Workforce Commission and there is a workforce commission in every state. These are federally Mm -hmm. funded. So they are there. Well, one of the the roles that they play, it's a huge agency, but under vocational rehabilitation is the offices to help people with disabilities. And so if you're in the school system and you have the individual education program, an IEP, which you would get if you successfully went through the whole testing and you Mm -hmm. were found comfortable under IDEA, et cetera, but they would loop vocational rehab in around the age of 14 for these these children in school to start transition planning. But guess what? You don't have to be in school to qualify Mm -hmm. for this. You as a homeschooler, as anybody in Texas can go ahead and call and set up an appointment with them and get the process started. And that's what I'm doing with my 14 year old twins now. And what they will do is if you, you qualify, you answer, you'll, they'll do an intake interview. They will, have you go be evaluated to confirm your disabilities or if you're suspected of a Mm -hmm. disability to see what those are. They also, in addition to the training programs you shared, they will even pay up to a certain amount for college. Mm -hmm. So, and I know lots of people, some people with physical disabilities, not, they don't need, you don't even have to have, it's all sorts of disabilities. They Mm -hmm. will pay for, um, for college, of course, I'm not going to say they're going to pay for all of it. There's certain you have to meet certain um, qualifications, and they have guidelines mm-hmm. about it. But that is huge. Yeah, training, jobs, education, yeah. and it is so underutilized. And that was one of the reasons I was excited about coming here today because it isn't about just about getting tested for dyslexia or ADHD or traumatic brain injury or autism. It is about helping to support our teens and 20 year olds Mm -hmm. with suspected disabilities or known disabilities transition into an a higher education setting or the workplace my oldest child um, she was homeschooled for a portion of her life from second grade to um, eighth grade and wanted to go to public school and public school turned out to be not a very good fit for her for many reasons and she came home and then she went back and she was having trouble earning any math credit. So finally, I made an appointment at the school and I said, this child is 17 and she has no math credits and I would like to have her evaluated. And after they evaluated her, they found that she had, I don't remember, you said, I always called it dyscalculia. Dyscalculia, and people pronounce dyscalculia. it dyscalculia or dyscalculia, so. Yeah, okay, so anyway, she, she was found to have this issue, which is great, we've got paperwork for it, but because she was 17, they said, we wanna put you in special ed, and she did not want that. I knew that she was going to leave school the next school year as soon as she turned 18. And I didn't know about the Workforce Commission. I think that would Mm -hmm. have been a great thing for her. 
And, you know, like you said, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And man, I think you're throwing out a lifeline for a lot of families today. I agree. I do, I do too. I, I have a question as homeschoolers. So especially my family, we're unschoolers for the most part. And my kids, their whole lives, we've just kind of let them learn at their own pace. And I've talked to a lot of other homeschool families who also learn the same way. And so we don't stress like our kids need to read at a certain age or do this at a certain age. And, you know, I've had some of my kids didn't read until much later than is considered typically normal. And I have friends whose kids didn't even pick up a book until they were 12 and then they were fine, but they didn't read before that. And that's just one example. But as homeschoolers, if we're kind of following our kids' leads and letting them learn on their own pace, how do we know what are the signs we should be looking for to know that there is a concern? So in those cases, I would actually look at the functional adaptive skills. And so can your child follow a two or three step direction? And so mm -hmm. we're looking at you know, first or second grade. Can your child, what is their pragmatic speech like? Pragmatic speech is hello, how are you, um, the turn taking in a social conversation. Is your child engaged with the world around them? Are they understanding or hearing when you're speaking to them? Do they seem to understand what you're saying? And when they're responding to you, are they expressing themselves? So their receptive speech and their expressive speech. Are What about their articulation? Do you understand their intelligibility? Do you understand what they're saying? And are there R's? being pronounced correctly or do they come across as W's? So you you sometimes have to step back when you are an unschooler or a homeschooler that's exploring the world experientially without a curriculum and look at your child in the context of the world around them and how they're do and and those adaptive functional skills. And like I said, using utensils or when they're playing with the Play-Doh or they're playing with rocks and sticks, are they using, looking at their, their grasp so you, you look at how they're holding their utensil or a crayon when they're drawing and looking at, do they have that tripod grasp? Do they have the the skills necessary? You look at when they're tracking. So for example, if you're playing a game of Connect Four, is your child able to see the diagonals um, mm -hmm. or are they just looking at the rows horizontally or vertically? Because if they're missing the diagonals, that might be a visual motor integration concern. If they're coloring outside the lines, if, if you're giving them if you're giving them a coloring book page that has lines for them to draw on, are they coloring outside the lines? So you look at the other things. You mm -hmm. don't have to look at the ABCs. And that's that's the beauty of homeschooling. And that's why I think yeah, so many yeah. of us homeschoolers know. So many of homeschooling parents still have concerns. Yeah. Because, well, you know, we ran into that with my youngest son. Um, sometimes he would say something to me and I didn't even know what he was saying. And so I, I said to his pediatrician, you know, I would like him to be evaluated for speech services because I don't want him to get older. He's already experiencing frustration with being able to have people understand him. And so the pediatrician said, well, you know, sometimes they outgrow that. And I said, yeah, but he is getting older and it's starting mm -hmm. to impact his interactions with other kids. And I'm his mother. And sometimes I don't know what he's saying. So um, we did, uh, he did submit a request for my son to be evaluated and they, they approved him for six months of speech therapy. And you know, it was amazing. He progressed so fast that we didn't even need the full six months. 
And it really, um, it really made him have a lot better, you know, feeling about himself because he was so mm-hmm. frustrated. And I thought, you know, I just don't want to wait. Why should we wait and let it become more of an issue? Um, so I, I think, you know, like you're saying, Justin, like when you see these things, it's really important for parents to maybe take action as soon as they might be able to, rather than to just wait it out. Absolutely. Early intervention is key. Studies show that time and time again. So if any parent is concerned, your gut instinct, your intuition is key. You might not be able to articulate why you're concerned, but if you're concerned, then let's go get your child evaluated and figure it out. And because what's the harm of getting the data? Because even with the data, you can go do amazing things and say, oh, well, you know, they've got these amazing processing speeds, but maybe their memory is lower. Or look, they they learn well visually, but maybe they don't do so well auditorily. So you're going to learn how Mm -hmm. they do all their learning style through this information. So I don't see how it could hurt, but, and then maybe you could be reassured if there is no issue, but if there's an Mm -hmm. issue, then you get in and you can manage it because we all know about brain development and we all have learned, well, I don't know if we all know about brain development, but I grew up learning (laughs) that the brain's plastic (laughs) until um, the age of six. I don't know if that's, and then the brain starts losing its plasticity. Now that was, you know, decades ago when I learned that Mm -hmm. I haven't really looked into it to see if that's still the case. But what that goes to show is that the earlier you get in, the more able and mobile and agile the brain is to be able to adapt and improve. And while the brain can still adapt the older you are, it's not quite as agile and it's going to Mm -hmm. take longer. And kids, one of the things we've learned when kids don't get supports, and this is what I see as an advocate, is kids, some kids internalize and some kids externalize. So what does that look like? Externalizing means they're going to act out. They're going to throw things. They're going to hit. They're going to kick. Internalizing means they get depressed and they get anxious. So if their needs are not being supported, they're going to know and they're they're going to do something. And so it's not just a matter of, um, oh, they'll grow out of it or everything's going to be okay. Or, well, you know, even if we wait, it's not going to be a big deal because their brains will adapt in, in 10 years anyway. Mm-hmm. No, because they're going to react. They're either become, going to become anxious and depressed or they're going to start having behavior and, and hitting, kicking, acting out, running away because they're struggling to function and figure things out when their brain isn't wired to do whatever is being asked of them to do. Those behaviors are cries for help, really. Like they're not saying, please help me. But as moms, we're paying attention. And like, I love that you said, follow your gut. If you see something and you're thinking something's not quite right, go ahead and like you said, find out, get somebody else to evaluate your kiddo for you. We've talked about a lot of different you know, issues like dyscalculia or dyslexia or dysgraphia on the autism spectrum. What are some things you could say to parents? Like if your child can't do X, you might be looking at dyslexia. If your child can't do X, you might be looking at dyscalculia. What are some of those warning signs for people who might not know? For dyslexia, again, if we're early elementary, if your child, so even as a preschooler, if your child can't do, say, their ABC, 
ABCs, despite repeated exposure to ABCs, if your child is struggling to rhyme, if your child has a speech delay, now just because your kid has a speech delay doesn't mean they're dyslexic. Remember, these are warning signs, right? If your child is struggling to take words apart or put them together. And then of course, as you're going along through the years, if your child is not being able to have the foundational parts of reading, which is the decoding, the encoding, or what about the comprehension? If, you're, if your child is not, if they can read, but then they can't answer questions as to mm -hmm. what they read, then that means they're spending so much time trying to to read it, to decode and figure out what they read, that they don't have anything left to tell you what they just read. We can look at the fluency. Fluency is actually automaticity. If you have a child who can't read a certain amount of words in a minute, and all of that's online, Hasbrook and Tyndall have, or oral fluency charts, then per a grade level or age level, if they can't meet those requirements, then again, that means that they're lacking foundational skills. So that would be dyslexia. When we look at dyscalculia, we look at math fluency again, we look at math, math calculation, and we look at math problem solving. And so that's going to be different depending on what stage of math a child is going to be in. Now, typically with dyscalculia, the idea is that you've got, you can typically do the basic foundation math and it's when you start getting into the more advanced math that everything falls apart and so touch points for kids tend to be third grade they tend to be the beginning of middle school they tend to be high school and they tend to be college because the smarter your child is the more coping skills that they're going to have to figure out workarounds to make mm -hmm. it work so it seems so they can mask their learning disability which also gives them more anxiety, by the way. <laughs> we found with my them. daughter. <laughs> yeah, we found with my daughter that um, it was the really abstract mathematics. Um, and it really started with decimal points. The decimal point was a real sticking point for her. Um, no pun intended. And she didn't, you know, she was in high school and she didn't say anything like, this is frustrating. I don't understand it. She was just belligerent and unpleasant. And unfortunately, the teachers weren't motivated to find out why. They were just like, this kid is hostile. You know, mm -hmm. she's a real bother in our classroom. Um, instead of saying, that's not usual for people to behave that way. And so I think that's the other issue that you, you can run into, right, is that especially if your child's in public school, there may be a behavior problem and nobody wants to help them because it's just so unpleasant to deal with mm -hmm. them. But like Melody said, they're begging for help in the only way they can. It's very few kids just say, I'm really struggling, you know, I need some help. It's not how it usually goes. And then you have dysgraphia too. That's the third one. And they a lot of times can be comorbid with each other. But dysgraphia and a specific learning disability and writing are actually two different things. With one, you have struggles with the handwriting and the handwriting is poor. It's hard to read. The other one, you have orthographic processing issues which or orthographic mapping issues, which means that, that you struggle to put your thoughts on paper and you struggle to organize your thoughts. So you struggle with the beginning, middle, and end, and you just keep talking and talking or keep writing and writing. And you also struggle with spelling too, because it's you struggle with that organization and, and where does that all go? Now, of course, spelling can be a dyslexia issue as well. But, and of course the dyslexia can bleed over to the math. <laughs> I mean, all yeah. of them can impact it's each other. all connected. 
it, it's all connected. And then, of course, ADHD is oftentimes comorbid with these because when you have oftentimes a typical profile of somebody with dyslexia is somebody that has low processing speeds and low working memory, which are hallmarkers of somebody with ADHD. Now, that being said, not everybody has that. Some people with dyslexia have great working memory and they can memorize things and get up and talk and talk without that much preparation. But so, you know, one person with dyslexia, you know, one person with dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. So what about the issues with ADHD and and being on the autism spectrum? Because I think people think ADHD is certain very specific things. And that may or may not be true. Um, Like my, my youngest son is, I don't think we've ever gotten him tired. He's got a phenomenal amount of energy and his body never stops moving. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're going to be visiting, you know, to have some evaluation, but he's, he can focus on things and he, he's a good reader and he's great with his, you know, narrations and things like that. His emotions are a little bit all over the place, but then again, he's 10. So we're like, <laughs> what is, what is, you know, pre-adolescence and what is something else? So ADHD, some people confuse, say ADD, and they're like, oh, I don't have ADHD because I don't have the hyperactivity. Well, if you look at the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Diagnoses, which is short term is DSM, it's it's ADHD and it's ADHD inattentive, ADHD, um, the hyperactive or ADHD combined. And again, everything, I everything's a spectrum. And so you can have somebody who just like your son appears to just have a lot of energy and be very hyperactive, but can still focus. Now there are those who, of course, there's something called hyperfocus and the ability to hyperfocus on a preferred activity, and then their inability to focus when it's a non-preferred activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's where I think there's a struggle going back to dyslexia, because if you can't read, then you're not going to focus on it. And mm-hmm. so I, I also believe that sometimes people with dyslexia are over-identified with ADHD because they can't, I'm sorry, especially with the younger ones, really, how are you going to focus if you can't read and you don't want yeah. And it's a non-preferred activity. Um, But anyway, getting back to the ADHD part, sometimes you have this superpower where if you're on a preferred activity, whether it's video games or even what my son likes to garden, and he can go out there and garden for hours. And then there are other things where you get five minutes out of him on, (laughs) you know, doing the dishes. And and that's, that's amazing, right? So you just have, so in those cases, you have to figure out what what is it that is the steps he's taking in the preferred activity and any sort of motivating things around it. And then you have to build that into the non-preferred activity. And as they get older, you get them to learn to self-identify what those feelings are mm-hmm. and those senses of accomplishment and get their buy-in to try to replicate that into their non-preferred activities. I think that's really a good point, Jessamine, because identifying all these things will help our our children and and burgeoning young adults to understand themselves better so they can interact with other people because no matter what, you know, your condition is, if you're neurotypical, neurodiverse, you have people in your life you care about and you want to interact with them Mm -hmm. and you 
can come away frustrated if your skills are lacking or if you can't verbalize for yourself. I mean, the whole the whole point is so that people can have happy, successful lives and be more aware of what they need and be able to articulate that. Right. And so, to I be mean, able to advocate perfect sense. for our kids to learn how to advocate for themselves as they get older. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a huge. Yeah, we're not going to be well. with them everywhere. Right. Yeah. And giving them the the terminology and the words for that is is a big deal. Like my my son that's in the workforce, we've always talked about openly with him about his diagnosis and what it entails and all of those things and have encouraged him to be able to express that to other people. So when he's off you know, at a job and he's having difficulty and needs some kind of special accommodation, he can actually speak to the people there and say, I'm autistic. And because I'm autistic, I struggle with this type of, you know, organization and I need to have a list. It helps me focus. And he's able to express that. And so as parents, as when we're learning to advocate for our kids, we also need to teach those skills to our kids as they get older. That's so important because it's, the ability for us to function in society independently, right? And we need to learn those social skills. We as a society need to learn how to get along with others. And Mm -hmm. even though we might be neurodiverse and I'm somebody who is neurodiverse, while people need to adapt and accept me for who I am at the same time, we are all different. We all have to work to accept each other's differences there's give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's where does my freedom in and your freedom begin, which means mm-hmm. that sometimes I will have to mask or use my coping skills mm-hmm. because I have to give a little bit. No relationship is 50, 50, no relationship is 50, 50. And so I can't expect people to give and, and accept me and give give 100% of them all the time for me, mm-hmm. I have to give too. And yes. so our kids need to learn. They need to learn how their brain works. Yes. They need to learn um, how they function in society and what those expectations are and how they can start working towards it while society works towards accepting them. Mm-hmm. They need to also work on skills to, to function. That's my personal opinion. Well, that makes perfect sense because because no one of us can just go running rampant through the world doing what we want. We can't drive the speed limit we want. I can't kick somebody's grocery cart out of the aisle when they <laughs> left it in the middle while I'm shopping. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just can't do what I want. That's just life you know, to consider others. Now, I have a question, and this <laughs> this might just be uh, in my household, but I I kind of think it probably isn't. So my youngest son, you know, I've talked to him about, you know, you you might have... ADHD, your brain, you know, might need different things. And I've noticed that sometimes I think he's trying to use that in a manipulative <laughs> way, like, well, you know, my brain said, and I'm like, mm, yes, okay, you may feel like this way, but you can't use that to behave the way you want. You know, is this is this information for you to help you make better choices? For example, his job is putting away the dishes. A lot of times he either leaves the cabinet door completely open or he fails to put something away. And I said to him, you know, your brain thought you were done. So what you have to do is try to work with yourself to check and see, did I finish the job? And he'll be like, well, but my brain just thought I was done. So I'm like, but no, <laughs> that, that doesn't mean you just go leave a trail of open doors. Somebody's <laughs> going to get hurt, you know. 
It doesn't mean we can't finish our job. It means we have to figure out a way to finish the job, you know. So do you ever that, see that or have kids use that? That's absolutely spot on. And one of the things that I encourage my own kids and my families to understand is that when you get an identification or a diagnosis, that this is not an excuse, it's an explanation. And mm -hmm. it's, an expla it's an explanation that we use to build on. For example, and again, this kind of, it goes along with, with your story and with the freedoms beginning and ending is that I have a child that has auditory processing disorder. He can't hear noise. And when there's lots of noise and things going on, he can become very irritable. Yet I also have children with autism, with ticks and stims, that part of their stimulation or, or feedback, sensory feedback they need is they like to click pins. And so those combat each other, right? And um, <laughs> the one that clicks the pins is like, well, I'm autistic. <laughs> <laughs> there are other ways for you to get your sensory needs met when we have another child who this is actually painful for him yeah and becomes irritable and cranky so you're hurting him when you for you to get your needs met when there are replacements behaviors and other yeah. and so that's what we work on and we work on building that understanding and we work on identifying how your sensory needs can still be met without having to click pin so. so you gave us some really great resources as parents for us to people we can reach out to for assessing. Um, but you own an advocacy uh, company and you you help other families with this. So when do we know that we need help as parents? When do we need an advocate? How do we know when it's time to call somebody? So one of the things that I did when I was a parent before I became an advocate was I hired an advocate when I started the process because I didn't want there to be issues and I wanted it to be a smooth ride. All too often people hire advocates when there is an issue. And at that mm -hmm. point, it's really hard to fix. I'm just going to tell you. Yeah. So I would suggest that the moment that you want to interface with the school system and you want to write that child fine letter, that's when you go get an advocate on your team. Because it's going to be at that moment and moving forward that you want to make sure that you're using the right trigger words to mm -hmm have the school do what needs to be done so that everything moves in the process and procedure that needs to happen. And what do you do for families as, as an advocate? As an advocate, basically I'm there to empower the family to navigate the public school system that has its own set of jargon and its own mm -hmm. set of procedural rules that you don't understand unless yeah. you have the system. And the school system has 10 people sitting at the table, well, sometimes four or five, but a lot of people sitting at the table who've all been steeped in this and take continuing education on this every year. And they use their own words. Mm -hmm. And so I get to help the, the family empower them and the child have that child's voice heard at the table because the children typically aren't at the table until they're 12 or 14. Um, they can start as young as the parent wants them to, but usually they're not there until about 12 years of age or so. And I get to help have that child's voice heard. And that is invaluable. Yeah, so you're like, the, we you're like a tour guide. If we go to a foreign country where we don't speak the language, you're like the tour guide that 
helps you along. It helps you to understand what they're talking about. Because you're right. We don't understand the terminology. It would like be like, you know, you could go sell your house without a realtor, right? You could go, <laughs> you could go do a lot of things on your own. Mm -hmm. um, however, present yourself in court. Yes, you could go do a lot of things on your own, but at the end of the day, if you want a smoother, more effective um, end result, then you're going to hire somebody who is knowledgeable about the process and the procedure. And so that's yeah. what I'm there to do. And I do I wish like we had had an advocate when I had my daughter tested when she was in public school. I remember being shocked by all the paperwork I had to fill out and the questions that were all the way down to, you know, what kind of a pregnancy did I have with her? And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this boy, they want to know everything. And yeah. I think people are probably shocked that they have to provide so much information. Even when my son was going to, going to be evaluated for speech therapy, I was like, do I really need to fill out this paper that asks how he eats? I'm, mm -hmm. I didn't know how that went with speech therapy. It was so many pieces of information and having someone who said, would say, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Go ahead and answer that question. You know, or mm -hmm. that, yeah. I mean, oh, I mm -hmm. wish I had known you years ago. I, I agree. I wish when my boys were in school, I wish I had had an advocate because we spent so much time arguing at 504 meetings and fighting for things we wanted that they disagreed with and so much of that. But I didn't, I wasn't aware that there were advocates that that was something we could utilize. So this is really important information. Well, and one of the things I didn't mention too, is that if your child is evaluated and you don't agree with the evaluation, you have the right to ask for an independent educational evaluation at school expense. Now, they don't always have to agree to it, However, that's another option, which is why if you have an advocate who looks over the consent you're signing to evaluate, to make sure that everything is in there that you want mm -hmm. them to do, and if they happen to not do it or they don't do it correctly or it doesn't look like that that's your child, that opens the door for even more options for mm -hmm. you to get the information that you need. But a lot of people don't always know that, or if they do know that, they don't understand like that piece of paper that you're signing that consent to evaluate. That's a really important piece of paper that your advocate needs to look at before you sign. But people don't, don't see that. They think, Oh, I'll just yeah. get the child fine letter and send it in. And, yeah. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Are there um, some regulations or certifications that an advocate should have or is required to have? What do people look for to make sure they can find an advocate who's, suitable to help them? Advocates do not need to be certified. There is no requirement, no certification. You could go hang out a shingle and say you were an advocate if you wanted to, as soon as we get off this call. But <laughs> one of the things to look for is the Council of Parents, Advocates, and Attorneys does offer training and certification, and they are one of the gold standards for training. I am a COPA trained advocate and I encourage anybody who goes to hire an advocate to go to COPA's website. And all you have to do is type in COPAA or Council of Parents, Advocates and Attorneys in Google and it will pop right up. Go to their directory and look in your state or your area. It's They are nationwide. And pretty much any advocate that you're interested in, most of us will work across state lines because of Zoom. 
definitely look for somebody that has COPA certification. William and Mary University in Virginia also offered a summer course a certification course. They haven't offered it in a couple of years, and I don't know if they're going to keep doing it, but that would be another gold standard course. Uh, right, Pete Wright of Wright's Law, which is another invaluable website with tons of information, but Pete Wright is dyslexic. He's an attorney, um, ADHD, amazing. though. They also will go around the country and offer certification courses. So those would be COPA and William and Mary University trainings would be the two top two. The third one would be the rights law, but I there are one or two others out there. I know there are lots of advocates running around training parents. There's one who's very popular, but I listened to one of her trainings and she said that the purpose of an IEP is just to make sure you you don't lose any more progress, that it's not to close the gap. And let me tell you, the purpose of an IEP is to close the gap. Mm-hmm. And so I would just be very mm-hmm. cautious about some of the advocates and attorneys that are providing their own training out there for parents. I would go to an advocate that has one of those gold standard certifications. Well, we could talk to you all day, Jessamine, but we're running out of time. Is there anything else people should know before we leave? Actually, yes. While we were talking, I looked it up and the Scottish Rite seems to be Texas only, but there are organizations that provide testing across the nation. So make sure you're asking your local homeschooling groups for information about your area. That's good to know. And how can people contact you and learn more about your own business? Do you have any social media? Well, I am on Facebook. They can just look up Children Need Heroes, and they could also send an email to info at Children Need Heroes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessamine. We really enjoyed having you. Well, thank you all so much for having me on today. It was a pleasure. Here at the end of our podcast, we like to answer a big question. Holly, what's our big question today? Our big question today is, how do I fulfill citizenship requirements for my child? In well, Texas, you're required yeah, to do in, citizenship. In Texas, one of your requirements as a homeschooler is to teach good citizenship. And I think that's so, it's so vague. People don't know what that means at all. And they're concerned that it might mean something specific that they have to teach. But really, it it's very open to interpretation. And for my family, a lot of what we do for good citizenship is is volunteering and being out in the community. Um, and to me, I personally feel like that fulfills that requirement. What do you guys do for that? A lot of different things, really. Um, it kind of, to me, it goes hand in hand with what um, I think some of us took in high school, which was civics, Yeah. which was learning how to, you know, give to your community and interact Um in your in your community so we do some volunteering i always take my child with me when i go to vote i talk to him about the responsibility of voting Uh, like when we go to the park a lot of times we see trash lying around Mm -hmm. and inevitably in that trash somewhere is a plastic bag that was floating through the air and we'll take the plastic bag and pick up the trash as we go through the park Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot about being a person who contributes to society rather right. than taking away from it. So it, it really, you're right. It's, it is kind of vague, but I think I like that because, you know, you can put um, these different activities down and try to have someone argue with you about whether or not that's citizenship. Right. I think it's all <laughs> right. citizenship. 
you know, we're we did taking care of the community cats. I think that's helping my neighbors. <laughs> you are. You're a good citizen. Yeah. But we also included like our government, which you said, civics and our study of government. And then we mm -hmm. would apply that to like, how does that look in real life? We have these principles that we're all living under. What can we do? What's the some people just want to do the minimum. Can you take initiative and do more than the minimum? What else mm -hmm. can you do for the community? Things like you said, you know, picking up trash. I remember one of my friends would um, have her, her daughter and my daughter would go along the roadside right along in our neighborhood and see how much trash they could pick up, which was that sad that there was any, but we live in a rural area and stuff blows around and animals knock over trash cans and <laughs> just like there was always trash for them to pick up and they would go and pick up around the little store in our little square and mm -hmm. we just well, did the same have, things yeah and you can have conversations with your children so uh, we've had the unpleasant experience that we're in a semi-rural area of actually being in our yard while someone drove by and threw something out of their window uh, yeah and talked about how that yeah, that that's not appropriate to use our community as a trash can and, you know, why that's a problem. Or we've also talked about, um, you know, caring for all the public land as a responsibility mm -hmm. so that everyone can enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Having big conversations with your kids is really an important part of citizenship. They're not yeah. going to get that by osmosis. No. And I, mm -hmm. I think when this question came up, I think that people may feel like citizenship means like you say the pledge with your kids every day or teach mm -hmm. them the state flower or whatever. And obviously if those are things you'd like to do with your family, you can do them. But I, I think it's a, a broader idea than that. And it is more about being a good community member. Mm -hmm. right. Be community minded. Oh, what can you yeah. give more than what you can take? Right. But I, I will say, um, and I'm glad that you said, Jennifer, about saying the pledge or things like that. When we were kids growing up, we did learn those things. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important to teach them to your children so that when they're out somewhere and people stand up and put their hands over they their hearts, or their heads, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, they understand um, mm -hmm. what that's all about. And they um, they might understand, you know, the symbolism of different things. Um, why do we or does our flag have 13 stripes? Such yeah, things yeah. like that, you know, being able to be part of the culture mm -hmm. um, is really important because homeschoolers have a rap for being mm. weird and awkward. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, that I've said before, if you're an awkward person, your school has nothing to do with it. That's just you. But we don't need to make things more difficult for our children by not providing them with information about the culture in which they yeah. live and the expectations people might have of them yes. and how they're going to interact for the greater good. In uh, one of our co-op classes a few years ago, we were doing a, a section of it on how the government works. I think it was during an election year and we were covering about, you know, how our government works. And we actually had the kids all study for and take the citizenship test that you know, oh, that's have to cool. take. and that was great. It was fun. They have like decks of cards you can get to to play with it and memorize it. And we did that. And, and that was interesting because, you know, it was a series of a hundred questions that a lot of Americans don't know the answers to. So that part of it was very interesting. And we learned a lot. That's wonderful. And I think that's a really important part of citizenship is understanding what it means to be a citizen of your country and appreciating it.
Mm-hmm. And I think even if your state doesn't particularly require that as part of your homeschooling, that it's still it's all still good stuff to do anyways. Before we go, we want to leave you with a few reminders. The late registration for the May 6th SAT is April 25th. If you want to support us here and help us grow, it would be great if you'd help new people find our show by leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Remember that you can get 20% off the cost of your Transcript Maker subscription with the code HAPPY. That's H-A-P-P-Y in all caps. If you'd like to learn more about anything we discussed today, you can find our show notes on our Facebook page in the comments to new episode posts. If you'd like to have a comment featured on our 100th episode spectacular, you can email us at happyhomeschoolpod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at happyhomeschoolpod. Next time, we'll be discussing how to know when your child is ready to graduate. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Jennifer. I'm Holly. I'm Melody. Happy Happy homeschooling. homeschooling. Hi, this is your host, Jennifer Jones. Thank you for listening to the Happy Homeschooler podcast, a transcript maker production. My co-hosts are Holly Williams-Urbach and Melody Gillum. This podcast was produced by Matthew Bass and edited by Nora Williams. Our graphic design is by Pete Soloway and our music is by The Great Pangolin. You can find more of her work on YouTube and Twitter at Kylie Wins. That's K-A-I-L-E-Y Wins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or, as always, tell people about us. We're doing well over here. Oh, that's good. Oh, me. <laughs> oh, well, Melody, Melody, you need to throw it to Jen. I was like, I got distracted. How have you been, Jen?